Open up your Bibles, if you would, to Luke 15. If you're still learning your way around the Bible, know this, that there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. The Old Testament starts with Genesis, and the New Testament starts with Matthew, and Luke is in the New Testament. So it's Matthew, Mark, Luke. And so I love this man. It really gives you an indication of Jesus, of his ministry, and that type of thing. So again, we'll start with the very first three verses of, um, of Luke in uh, Luke 15, and then we'll move down to verse 10. So it says, tax collectors and other notorious sinners. Now, this isn't going to surprise you, but I always have to stop there and point out that they were notorious sinners. They, were, they, they didn't cover their stuff up. They didn't cover up what they were doing. It was obvious and evident to everybody about, you know, about who they were. But it says this about them, that they often, everybody say often, often came to listen to Jesus teach. So they were regular attenders. People that were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus, and he liked them too. Notorious sinners came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Now, again, as I've talked about before, that you know cultures mean something. And so for them, for, for people that were tax collectors and notorious sinners to show up to the Pharisees, that in itself was bad enough. Like, man, look who's coming here. You know, are you sure you're doing what God wants you to do? Do you see who's coming, who's showing up, and that kind of thing? And so, but then Jesus even carried it a step further, and that is after they were through a synagogue, after, after church was over, he'd go get lunch with them. But, you know, he would hang out. He would, he would eat with them. And, you know, even in our culture, to sit down and have a meal with somebody, there's an element of intimacy with that, you know, that it's, it's you know, it's, there's kind of an affirmation and getting together. And their culture was huge. As a matter of fact, it was such a big deal to them that they felt like that if you hung out with people that were like notorious sinners, that not only was, it, was that not good, but it would make you unclean as well. So you have all of these, you know, Pharisees, religious people that they're criticizing Jesus. Like, how can you hang out with these guys? They're so horrible. They're so bad. I mean, you're going to end up, you know, and all this stuff. So as a result of that, it says this, that because of that, that Jesus told them this story. So he told them a story. And the story he told them was about a guy that had a hundred sheep and one of the sheep wandered away. And so the guy went and found the sheep. He put it on his shoulders and he carried it back home rejoicing and then he threw a party and he said, look, my sheep that was lost, he's found. And Jesus said, just like if you were that man and you celebrated the return of the sheep, just like you would celebrate that, heaven celebrates when somebody returns home to the Father. Just like you would celebrate if you lost something like that. Then he tells another story. There was a woman that had 10 coins. And, and again, in our culture, that may not mean anything. A lot of theologians think that the coins represented her dowry. That what she would give as a, as a present when she got married. So it had a, a huge amount of significance to her future. and What she thought and what she wanted. Well, she lost one of the coins, so she began to look for it. She turned the house upside down until eventually she found it. Then she called her friends together. Hey, come together with me. I found this coin. And they celebrated. And he said, just like if that was you and you found that, you would celebrate. So the Father in heaven and the angels celebrate. There is a party when people come to Jesus. Just like you would celebrate if you lost your credit card and you found it. Just like you would celebrate if you lost your wallet or your purse or your car keys. Or you don't remember where you parked your car at in the mall and so you got to come back later when there are fewer cars there. <laughs> Have you ever done that, Pastor? Mind your own business, okay? But just like, just like that, you know, you would, you would celebrate. You would go find it. If you misplaced one of your kids, you would 
eventually look for them and then celebrate when you found them. He said, just like that, heaven celebrates when somebody returns home. So he told them both those stories. But then he goes on. So it says this. He says, um, to illustrate the point further. I was going to tell them another story. Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. Everybody say two sons. I think we get so caught up on the younger son that I think we lose sight of the fact that the older one was his son too. He had two sons. So he loved them both. He had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed. Everybody say agreed. He agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. So today we're talking about the perspective of the father. So one of the first things I want you to know that with the father, when the son went away, I want you to know something interesting didn't happen. The father didn't chase him. Now we find out later on that the father's love for his son was unquestionable. But I think we have to understand this, that first of all, that the father was not an enabler. You know, it's tough, right? It's tough when somebody leaves and they break our heart. It's tough when somebody in their brokenness does things that impacts us and they almost seem indifferent to it. You can imagine, you know, as a father, you know, or a parent that if your child just leaves, you know, they, they just want your stuff because you're not dying quick enough. And then once they get your stuff, they really don't want your presence. They just want your stuff. They go to another place. Because they, they don't want to be around you. How heartbreaking is that? And, and we can assume from, from the story here and thinking about the father's wealth that the truth of the matter is, is that the father had the resources to go into the distant land and retrieve his son forcefully and make him come back. But he didn't. Was it because he didn't love him? No, absolutely. That wasn't it at all. The father recognized this, that sometimes that if we're unwilling to let his voice matter in a certain season, sometimes there's a work that can only take place in the distant land. There's a work that can only take place after we've been indifferent, pushed our way through, just been stubborn and just selfish and the things that we do that, you know, that I heard somebody say one time that we grow, there's three reasons why we grow. One is if we learn enough. One, one is, if, is if we uh, mature enough, over the reason why we change. One, if we learn enough. One, if we grow enough. Or one is if we hurt enough. And man, as, you, know, you, can, you know, this isn't just as parents. This is in any area of our life. But, you know, as a parent, man, I mean, one of our first things is always to pursue. And, I, you know, and I get it. It's a hard place to be. I talked last week about as a church that if we're going to make a mistake, we're going to make a mistake in sometimes being good to people that are taking advantage of us. I would rather be accused of that. Well, you know, they just helped those guys and they shouldn't have, as opposed to, you mean they didn't help them? So it's going to happen. But, but in that, you know, I don't want to be just completely indifferent to that at all either. And then when we love people, sometimes it's hard to watch them make their decisions and not want to rescue them from the consequences of the choices that they've made. And yet the father, as much as he loved his son, he was willing to release his son. You know, anytime I talk about marriage or parenting, I, I hesitate because I never want to imply that Tina and I have never had any issues. I think one of the things that maybe qualifies me a little bit more so now to talk about marriage is because we weren't that couple that never argued. 
As a matter of fact, we should have just started scheduling them at one point. Hey, do you, what time do you have? Do you have time like at 11 o'clock? Can we, can we fight? Can we fight at 11? Is that, that going to work for you? No, I'm busy. Come back at 1130. I'm free. I mean, it was just... We, it was that we went through that, and I'm not advocating that or whatever. Matter of fact, you know, <laughs> there are many days I'm like, I don't know, why do we do this, you know? But we've gotten, you know, but we grew to a point where, I, you know, we've been able to grow. So, and, and talking about our kids, you know, I never want to, indicate, you know, I never want to you know, uh, insinuate that we were just perfect parents or they were perfect. Neither one of those things are true. So I'll say this, that, and uh, that's a preface saying this, that all three of our kids are in a pretty good place right now. You know, they're, they're, you know, they're serving God, they're going to church, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're loving the people they're married to and raising their kids and that kind of thing. But they, you know, just like me, they've had seasons. They've had seasons, different ones have had seasons, they challenge, you know, one thing is, that, you know, you say, why is what? I know their dad, he can be a mess. And so, um, but they've had seasons, you know, and at times as a dad, as a parent, when they're, when they're, if they're not making a good decision, your first instinct is to automatically rescue them. And try to pull them out before they're ready to be rescued. This father wasn't an enabler. His heart was broken. His son left. All he wanted was stuff. How used does that make you feel? But he didn't quit loving his son. You know, sometimes we pray for people, and we don't see a change in them. We get mad at God. And I pray, they're, they're worse now than they were. Well, there could be several reasons, but never lose sight of this, that people have a free will, just like you, just like me. Can, can I tell you, this should be real transparent with you. In my behavior, at times, God would be dealing with me about something, and I would never say this out loud, but you know what my behavior said? No. I'm not doing it. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to still be mad at them. I'm going to still say that. That's not okay. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's in a rebellious moment and it's not okay. But I certainly didn't do it because God was indifferent to it. Certainly I'm not the only one that I'm sitting there and Tina says something and I had this great comeback. And my mind goes, or actually it's, it's a God thought, don't say that. Yeah, but it's so good. <laughs> don't, don't say it. And next thing you know, I've, I've said it. And like 30 seconds after I say it, I'm like, man, I should have really listened to that voice because saying it was not nearly as fun as I thought it would be. And that's with God dealing with me. So we can pray for people, and, and what happens is it invites God into that place, into that moment, into that season of their life, and he deals with them. I know he does. I know he speaks to them. He gives them God thoughts. He, he you know, begins to reveal his plan to them. But even after he does all of that, they still have a choice. And sometimes the work takes a while. It, the shaping takes a while. The healing takes a while. The, the coming to yourself takes a while. But the father was willing to let his heart break while he waited. 
He waited. He wasn't an enabler. So the younger son, while he's in the distant land, he spends everything he has. He ends up working for a Gentile who's raising pigs, which is a, you know, an insult to his culture. And eventually he's like, you know, if, I, if my father's home, you know, I, even the servants eat enough. And I'm not worthy to be called a son. But he begins to kind of put together this plan of what's going to happen when he goes home. So in verse 20, it says this. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, everybody say long way off. His father saw him coming. Now, I, I don't know this for a fact, but I, I really kind of speculate that even though the father didn't, didn't enable him, he didn't pursue him and say, oh, come back home. Things, I'll change. Things will be different. We'll let you have your way. He didn't do that. There's a work that he'd be done in his son that he was unwilling to have at his home. But I believe this too, that even though he didn't go chase after him, that every day he went, he went to the end of his land and looked out over the horizon with an expectation, with a longing for his son to come home. That with his heart broken and restraining himself from pursuing him, every day to look out there and think, is today the day? And we have no indication how long he was gone, you know, whether it was like, you know, months or years. We don't know. But one day, he looked out beyond the horizon, he saw his son coming home. Now, in their culture, well, first of all, Jesus was telling a story that was familiar in their culture. And in their culture, the way the story would typically end is that he would come home, but the father would not welcome him back. He would make him wait outside the property. The town and the community would shame him. And eventually, he would be ostracized. And they would tell this story so that all the Jewish children would understand you need to honor and obey your parents or you'll end up working for a Gentile feeding their pigs and then not welcomed by your own family when everything's not good. So you can imagine the crowd that Jesus is with that he's, as he's telling this story that, you know, what's going to take place. And as a matter of fact, it, it, when the, in their culture, when a son would try to return home, that on his way to his dad's house in the community, because the story would be out by now, that people would see him and begin to yell insults at him and just try to humiliate him and create all sorts of elements of shame as he, as he came back. And then eventually when he would get to the father's land that he would be kept outside of the property. If there was a fence there, he wouldn't be allowed to come in. Sometimes for months. Because the father wanted to teach him a lesson. And if there was ever a time, eventually if the father said, no, you're not welcome, then they had this ceremony where they would bring this pot out and there would be different things in the pot. And the community, along with the father, would begin to pronounce curses upon his life. And then they would break the pot and it would be their way of saying, you are no longer welcome here. So Jesus starts telling this familiar story, but he changes the ending. It's not the one they grew up with. In his story... When the father saw him from a long way off, he didn't turn his back on him. Matter of fact, let's read what he did. Filled with, he, from a long, way, a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son. Now, the word ran that's used there in the Greek, it, it, the word, it's a word that they use for raced. It wasn't just a jog or power walking. He raced to him. 
Now, there are different things in culture that we do, but in their culture at that time, for, for any, any male that was over, older 25, over 25, that they were known by one of the things that they, did, that they demonstrated dignity was by how they walked. They walked, they walked, they didn't walk in a hurry, they, they, they walked intentionally. And, and to do something other than that, if you're a male over 25, it was very, it was very um, disres- disrespectful. Um, you know, it, was, it was a way that you, you, know, you were just doing it in such a way that, that you're going to bring shame on yourself. So the father sees his son from a long way off. Not only does he not turn his back on him, not only does he not walk intentionally dignified out to meet him, he races to him. We don't know this, but I think the reason why is, is because, like I said, in their culture, as, as the son is making his way home, he knows it's just a matter of time before the community begins to encounter him and begins to try to heap shame upon him. And so he runs, and I think one of the things he does is that he takes the shame that should have went to his son, that his son rightfully deserved, and he ran to him, not just to communicate to his son that I'm so glad you're home, but he did it also to distract the attention from his son and bring it on himself the same way that Jesus carried our shame. Shame, you know, it's, it's such a powerful thing, isn't it? And it feels so noble because we feel bad for what we did. But shame, man, it's a trick of the enemy. The son in his shame never saw himself as being in relationship with his father again. He thought because of what he had done, the best he could do is maybe work for him. His shame communicated to him, you can't be his son anymore. But the father in his goodness, who had already endured the shame of, of letting a son leave, when he saw his son come back, he raced to meet him. He ran as hard as he could towards him. In their culture, which would be considered undignified. To see him do that and for them to come, you know, for them, all their criticism, not to be on the sun, but to be on him. Can you see what he did? He took his son's shame. He got to him before they could pronounce their curses upon him, before they could humiliate him. He got there and it says that when he did that, he ran to his son. He embraced him. And it says he kissed him and the word that they use there for kissing means over and over again. It'd be like grabbing somebody and... Just, I'm just so glad you're here. I think sometimes we read this story with just too much dignity. Without a realization of, of just, you know, what a father that missed his son would be like. And so, he embraced him and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, oh, see, what, you know, obviously the father wasn't alone. People are watching. They're, they're going with him like, what's he doing? And while his son's talking, he turns. And before they can say anything to him, before he even like, you know, he doesn't even correct this. And he turns, look, he, just, he tells him, he gives the servants that are with him instructions. And he says this, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Now, back then, robes were a sign of position. Like, you know, kings would wear certain robes and would tell everybody, oh, that guy's the king. And so in different positions, you would wear robes that would say, they would, they would identify, you know, servants had different robes, you know, people in position had different robes, family members had different robes. So he was getting a robe put on him, and it wasn't a servant's robe. 
And then it says this, they only need to put a robe on him. But he said this, it says, get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Back then, wealthy families would have rings that would have their own family signet on it. And they would, they would put that ring on. And wherever you went, people may not know you, but they would know that ring. And they go, oh, you're part of so-and-so's household. Oh, so-and-so's your father. Oh, you're part of this clan. You're part of this group, part of this tribe, part of this community. The son... On his way home with the smell of the distant land still on him is restored. The father, he may not be an enabler, but you know what he is? He's a restorer. He's a restorer. He restored his son while he still smelled like the world. While he still had the smell of the distant land, I'm confident he didn't stop at a love's truck stop along the way and take a shower. Not that that would have helped a lot. But I mean, he had the smell of the distant land on him when his father saw him and raced to him and grabbed him and kissed him over and over again. And with his servants standing there, just knowing what their culture was like, probably looking in amazement while his son is trying to say, just let me be a servant. He's like, go get him a robe and sandals and a shoe. Shoes, get both of them. And so get, it says this, Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. It, it, it didn't bring about this ceremony where they were going to create him as an outcast, tell him he was never welcome there again. It created a celebration that he had returned home. The father could have went out and tried to rescue him, but if, if he would have drug him back, then he never would have been certain, is, is he really serious this time? Does he really mean it this time? He knew that the work in him for him to come home had to be a complete work that he had to do on his own, that when he was, he knew, you know, he didn't change his, he didn't change the rules of the household, he didn't change how things were done. The son had to be willing to come back into the father's household, you know, willing to live in a relationship on the father's terms. But the father's terms was he loved him even in his brokenness. This isn't a story about how sinful the son was. It was a story about how lost he was. And in his lostness, it contributed to a sinful life, a broken life. But his father was so good. He restored him to sonship. He was even saying to his servants, he's not a servant. He's a son in our house. Give him the son's robe. Give him the family's ring. Back then to eat meat, you know, it was just one of those things that, you know, it was just... They were fortunate they were able to eat it. And so they would have a calf that they would be fattening. And they would just kind of keep it. It was like, you know, he was grain fed. He ate better than no other calf. And probably if he knew what they were feeding for, he would have fasted. But he was, you know, he was eating all this stuff. And, and so eventually, he, that's why he said, let's go, you know, today's the day. Today's the day we celebrate. I wondered this. I wonder when the last time they celebrated as a family. Was it before he'd left? But when he came home, the father raced to him. And he took the shame that belonged to the son. Because he didn't want shame to get in the way of his son's return. He welcomed him. Just a side thought, man, if you're here, 
Maybe because of some decisions you've made, shame has kept you away from Jesus for the longest time. It's a lie. It's a trap. It's a trick of the enemy. It feels noble because we hate what we did, but it keeps us away from restoration. It keeps us away from presence. Come home. The Father was a restorer. Galatians 6.1 says this, that spiritual people restore people. The church should be a place of restoration. It should be a place where you know that the distant land had been hard on the son. His sense of unworthiness kept him from pursuing relationship. But the father's pursuit said that he was welcome. He welcomed him home. So then was the father, he was, he was not an enabler, but he was a restorer. Let's look at this last thing. Go to verse 31. It says this. So the son comes, the older brother comes in from the fields. Remember we had that last week? And he's like, what's going on? And the servant said, well, your, your brother's back and they're throwing a party for him. And he was so angry he wouldn't go in. So now they got to go in and tell the father, hey, you have two sons. Your other son, he's out there. He refuses to come in. He refuses to come in. So the father has to get up from his guests, from the celebration and go out. And it says this, the New Living says he begged him, please come in. Not for his benefit, but for his brothers. You know, in their culture, that when the younger son would do what he did, which is go away, a lot of times the older brother would be the one that would be responsible to try to stop the younger brother. To say, don't do this. Don't break our father's heart. I know it just, it, there's an appeal out there, but, but don't do that. Stay. But we have no record of the older brother doing that, trying to persuade him to not leave. Matter of fact, you know, for all we know, it may have been because of the older brother's attitude that the younger brother would want to go would want to leave. There have been people in church like that sometimes that they've ran into the older brother and it's caused them to want to say, I don't want this. And they haven't left because of the father's heart. They've left because of how the older brother treated them. I've been the younger brother before. I've been shamed by the older brother. I don't want to be the older brother. But the older brother didn't want to go in and the father went out and he began to talk to him and he said this, his father said to him, verse 31, look, dear son, you've always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. I, I mentioned this last week, but when the older brother was talking about the younger son to his dad. He didn't refer to him as my brother. He referred to him as your son. Your son wasted everything he had. He wasted it on wild living. He wasted it on prostitutes and all that. And he comes back and you throw a party for him? You've never done that for me. But when the, when the father begins to talk to the older brother, he doesn't refer to him as my son. He said, your brother. He wanted his older son to understand that he had a responsibility in the well-being of his brother. It's so easy in the church, man, to lose sight of the fact of this responsibility that we have towards those that are away from Jesus. Paul said this, that he was indebted. In Romans chapter 1, he said, I'm indebted to tell people. One study I read just recently, and I may be off a few percentage points, but I'm close, 
that the study was like on, on students that were raised in church when they went to college. I think it was like either 60 or 70% of them left church while they were in college. Left church. Later on, maybe half of those return. And I just feel like kind of in our nation right now that there's just this real, there's just this real generation of prodigals that are out there away from the Father's house. And I think it, that we have to, we've been, we can be indifferent to that. And I think we're missing it. I think we have to embrace it. I, I think we have to look for them with an expectation, longingly, not compromising who we've been called to be, but loving them in an uncompromising way. And to begin to pray and to wait and to watch for the opportunity to celebrate their return. Here's a question we just need to ask ourselves, man. When's, when's the last time we prayed for a prodigal? Somebody that was connected, that was there, that they're just not. Number three is this. The Father wants the lost one to matter to me. He's already proven he matters to him. You know, in our culture, we talk about how much God loves us, and that's a truth, and you can't hear that enough. I need to hear it. On my worst day, I need to hear it. But I think we're, we've established it. You know, so, so more and more, we're answering the question, does God love me? The answer to that is yes. You know, the, the question that, that we have to answer on a daily basis is not does he love me, but do I love him? And if I love him, then what he loves, I love. He loves the lost one, the prodigal, the away one, the one that the religious me would want to shame, but the one that the relational me can't help but love because he's not just some other person. He's supposed to be part of the family. On your seats are these little cards and in just a minute, I'm, I'm going to give us an opportunity to just spend a moment with God. And, and I just want you to look at it while we're spending a moment with God and maybe see if God gives you a name to kind of put on there. Keep that in a safe place, in a private place. I wouldn't expose it, you know, you know. But just in a place that will remind you that, hey, I'm going to pray for this person. But I want us just to spend a moment with God. Just let him deal with us and speak to us. Let's talk to him about things in our life. And just hear what he has to say. Let's just spend a moment with him.